Welcome to the Inside Nature Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Olson, digital producer for Nature. In this episode, we speak with environmental journalist David Biello. Dave is a contributing editor at Scientific American Magazine, science curator for TED, the organization that produces TED Talks, and has presented a number of documentaries on energy for PBS. Late last year, he published his first book, The Unnatural World, The Race to Remake Civilization in Earth's Newest Age. The book details the many ways human activity has altered our planet, often for the worse. And on a more optimistic note, it looks at the efforts of people who are trying to roll back those alterations, or at least lessen their impact. I spoke to Dave about our increasingly unnatural world in our New York studio. So Dave, I'd like to welcome you to the Inside Nature podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, To start, perhaps you could give us a broad overview of the unnatural world and what was the inspiration for writing it? Well, so I've been an environmental journalist since the 20th century, uh, which means I'm old. And uh, I had been writing about kind of environmental issues, whether it's the extinction of species or climate change or ocean acidification, all these things that tend to put people to sleep. And I was realizing more and more that um, they were all interrelated. Um, And so I thought, wouldn't it be great if there was some kind of an idea that could unite all these things so that we could perhaps begin to understand that we need to solve these problems together, not uh, not separately. You can't solve climate change without solving kind of energy poverty. You cannot solve the extinction crisis without uh, feeding people. Um, and yet we tend to think of these things as, as separate. Um, and so, lo and behold, scientists granted my wish and came up with this term, which I hate, by the way, the Anthropocene. Um, but it does unite uh, all these disparate strands and say, hey, this is all related. Humans are having this kind of pervasive, profound, permanent impact on the planet that's going to show up in the geologic record no matter what happens to our civilization. And uh, the thought was, or my thought was, that using that idea, I could begin to explore how these seemingly separate problems are actually interrelated. Um, and that's uh, how I came up with the unnatural world. So, um, you know, that you know that topic sounds like it could be a bit of a downer of a book, right? And, <laughs> Doom and gloom. Um, and, and we worked together for a number of years at Scientific American, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, Dave, how does he, how does he get up in the morning? That's... It's kind of bleak, um, you know, covering the environment. But your book also has a very positive note to it. And you you really highlight people that are doing positive things to change the planet and to reverse some of the damage that we've done as a species. Um, how did that come about? And, um, you know, why did you take that approach with this book? Yeah, some of the reviewers have, have called me defiantly hopeful or, uh, you know, that the book is kind of an inflected with a upbeat morbidity, which I think is uh, probably pretty accurate. Um, what I would say to that is there's no point in, in despair. If, if, if we despair, there's no reason to do anything. Just sit out on the back porch and, and watch it all burn while, while, while drinking a cocktail or, or whatever your pleasure is. Right. Um, hope is the only thing that seems to get people to do something. And there's still a lot of hope out there. We're not doomed yet. Uh, we haven't been doing a very good job. That's because we haven't been uh, paying attention, quite frankly. Um, or we've felt that there was nothing that, that we could do. But uh, 
the book is meant to show you that there's plenty that you can do and that there are plenty of folks who are perhaps also unusually optimistic uh, who are doing things to try to improve the world. Right. One of those uh, groups of people that are trying to sort of undo the damage uh, is a group trying to bring back extinct species. And you detail one plan to bring back the passenger pigeon in the U.S., which used to number in the billions, I believe. That's right. Uh, and was basically hunted to extinction. We ate it to death. Ate it, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, market hunters basically would shoot the pigeons. This is actually why they're called clay pigeons, by the way, oh. uh, you know, on shooting ranges. Um, market hunters would go out and, and, and shoot these birds that were just out there in the millions and even billions, and uh, they would go back to, uh, to be eaten in cities like, uh, like New York, and they'd show up in restaurants. Interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, so, you know, are, are plans like this to sort of de-extinct species, uh, are they likely to be successful? And do they even make sense for a species that has been extinct for like 100 years or a species that has been extinct for 10,000 years, say, like the woolly mammoth or something like that? Yeah, there's a big difference between being extinct for, for a short period of time and for a really long period of time. Um, de-extinction is interesting in that it seems to be a very inspiring dream for some people. And I would say that the, the whole impetus for this passenger pigeon thing is because one guy, Ben Novak, who I write about in the book, is simply obsessed with passenger pigeons. And he really, really, really is mad that they no longer exist. Um, and he feels betrayed by his ancestors that they could be so uh, careless as to eat them to death. And so he has uh, uh, kind of harnessing the tools of, uh, of paleogenomics. This is the sequencing of, of, of lost ancient DNA. So he's pulled specimens out of museum drawers, tried to piece together what the passenger pigeon genome looked like, its genetics, mm-hmm. and then using the new kind of improved tools of genetic engineering is going to try to re-engineer the species out of some of its close relatives that, that happen to be still with us. I mean, there are plenty of pigeons out there in the world, as anyone who lives in New York City can tell you. And it's, so it's sort of a Jurassic Park uh, scenario where, where we're using closely related species as surrogates for uh, bringing back a particular species. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and there are a couple challenges with that. One is, uh, it turns out it's really hard to clone birds. Um, mm. he, as you would imagine, there's a lot of research that goes into this, in particular into one bird, the chicken, because we eat so many of them. Um, and if they could kind of clone it, they would, because then they could c- control the process. But they haven't been able to do that because the bird kind of egg is a, is a big cell, uh, and so it's right. tough to engineer it. Um, and that's going to be a big challenge for the passenger pigeon, and they certainly haven't uh, surmounted that. Then if you want to talk about the woolly mammoth, um, its closest relative is the Asian elephant. So are you going to have an Asian elephant mother kind of bear and carry to term, which is more than a year, uh, uh, this woolly mammoth baby? That's, that's quite a big ask of, uh, of that poor Asian elephant mother, and what are the... What are the ethics of that? So they're also trying to do things like create an artificial womb. And that points up what I think is the real hope of de-extinction, which may not be to bring back these extinct species, but to use the technologies that are developed along the way Mm -hmm. to help species that we still have. So, for example, the black-footed ferret was down to 18 individuals out west, um, just devastated by disease and and poisoning uh, because uh, uh, folks didn't like them. Right. as you can imagine, they're pretty inbred. Uh, so genetic engineering can be used to reintroduce some of the 
kind of genetic diversity that was lost from those museum specimens into the black-footed ferrets that are alive today. Okay. And yeah. in addition, they may be able to engineer in some resistance to the plague that was the primary reason the black-footed ferret is almost extinct. Mm -hmm. um, so those are kind of reapplications of de-extinction technology, if you will, not in a de-extinction context, but in a preventing extinction context. And I think that's where it'll really actually play a, a key role. So you can imagine that for the black-footed ferret or yeah. any other animal that you care about, the northern white rhino, uh, elephants, you name it, um, these techniques could yeah. be employed to really to really help those animals. For, for the audience listening, if you want to read more about the passenger pigeon uh, part of Dave's book, we have that on the website. We have an excerpt, and, and you can uh, read more about that there and the challenges with uh, bringing back species uh, from the past. Yeah, uh, it ain't easy. <laughs> okay, so the unnatural world documents the many ways that humans have altered the planet uh, from its chemistry to its biology. But perhaps what I found the most disturbing is this idea that from generation to generation, we're collectively forgetting what the Earth used to be like, what kind of species are around, what the, you know, landscape looks like. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? And is there anything that we can do? Uh, and do you think that wildlife programs like nature, for example, that document uh, nature as it is now have a role in safeguarding our collective memory? I think there's no doubt about that. Um, this is the idea, and it is a profoundly depressing idea, that scientists call shifting baselines. So basically, whatever the world looked like when you were young is what you accept as pristine. Um, and the reality is that, uh, say, if you were if you're born in the 1990s, the coral reefs of the Caribbean look quite different than if you were born in the in the 1940s uh, and grew up snorkeling under both those circumstances. The big fish are gone. Uh, the coral is is bleached and and suffering, um, but you might not necessarily know that that was a bad thing if you are uh, you know from the younger generation. You just kind of accept that as your baseline of reality, and that right. means that you perhaps don't have the same impetus to try to get back to when the reef was healthy in the 1940s, or even, frankly, before that. Yeah. Um, and we have very few clues outside of pictures and old shipping logbooks for just how abundant the natural world was. I mean, people used to say that you could walk on the backs of the codfish in, in Newfoundland, and yeah. now we don't have cod. Yeah, I, I remember seeing a great example of this where um, they had a, a fishing contest in Florida every year, and you know, going back a hundred years and you would see each each year the fish would be getting smaller and smaller. It would start with these giant, you know, groupers or something. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, today it's these small little, you know, one foot fish, which is like a, you know, thousand pound fish or exactly. something crazy. That's yeah. exactly it. And uh and if you don't know that those, you know, forty foot long grouper existed, then why would you miss them? Mm -hmm. Um and the ideal is or the idea is to try to bring back some of that awareness. Um, and that's where, you know, a program like yours uh, hopefully can help by showing people, hey, this isn't normal, what's going on out there in the ocean. This isn't just the way it is. This is something that we chose. And you know what? We can choose to undo it, too. There are ways to uh, help coral reefs uh, come back. Um, I think there's 
too much of a sense that maybe the coral reefs are, are, are doomed no matter what we do, and so people just kind of give up. The reality is that, that coral reefs have been around for hundreds of millions of years. They're pretty resilient, and what is uh, destroying them is the fact that we are hitting them with so many challenges. So it's not just climate change raising uh, ocean temperatures or the CO2 in the atmosphere making the oceans more acidic. It's also the fact that we're dumping sewage on them, which acts as a nutrient for the algae that then kind of takes over the reef. And we're also overfishing them, which means that the fish can't eat that algae back or help keep the, the reef uh, healthy. So it's just this combination of threats that is, uh, that is so deadly to the coral reef. Mm. If we could just get it down to just one right. uh, or none, even better, right. <laughs> uh, the reefs would probably be able to adapt to some of the changes that are kind of slower and bigger, like, uh, like climate change. Right. I, I guess aside from sort of stopping all of our industrial activity, um, you know, what sort of – let's take the reef, for example. I mean, what sorts of things could we do to, to mitigate the damage that we're doing? Um, are there are there practical concrete steps? I think we've had this discussion before. Uh, like. <laughs> it's a it's a discussion that comes up every time, right? It's a glass half full, glass half empty uh, kind of thing. Are you going to be doom and gloom, or are you going to be hopeful? And I, as you can tell, err on the side of of hope because I think that's actually more motivating. But what right. I would say is, on the over overfishing front, it's it's pretty easy. It's called uh, stewardship. You just kind of fish in one area, then let it rest and recover and move to a different area. And this seems to work. Uh, also, marine preserves, pretty good at, uh, at, at helping fish stocks recover. And guess what? Uh, we eat those fish. We want those fish stocks to recover. I mean, uh, yeah. there are millions of people around the world who, who rely on those fish as their only source of protein. Yeah. Um, we need those fish, and so we need to do a better job of, uh, of uh, kind of managing those resources. The same uh, techniques that we've applied on land to, uh, you know, cattle farming or whatever else, you kind of rest a pasture right, right. Uh, before you go back, before you bring the cows back to it. The same thing needs to be applied to the ocean. It's just that we need that shift in mindset because people think of the ocean as this vast, wild, untamed place, this unknowable place, this dangerous place. And it is all those things, but it's also we're on a much smaller planet now, and uh, we need to apply some of the same things we've learned to do on land to sea. And that, and that's the same attitude that sort of led to the, the extinction of the passenger pigeon on land. We thought, gosh, there's just billions of these birds. Exactly. There's no way we could ever, yeah. you know, How can we eat them all? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, it's, uh, and it's true because you, what you set in motion is this kind of population dynamic where you're taking out way too many individuals. It's a species that needs a lot, a lot, a lot of individuals in order to thrive and survive. And so you just set up this uh, kind of vicious circle where it just spirals down until, until you're left with Martha, the last passenger pigeon right. in the Cincinnati Zoo, which is just... You know, these this idea of the last of, of any species is just it's just such a sad concept for me. I mean, it really um, it just makes me so sad. And, and um, you know, I think most people share that mm -hmm. and, and we want to avoid that if if we can. But, you know, because of shif shifting baselines, we kind of accept that the world doesn't have passenger pigeons. Right. Um, but wouldn't it be great if, if Ben can bring them back? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, is there is there anything that we can do to sort of 
Um, I mean, nature documentaries, obviously, uh, is there anything else that we can do to sort of safeguard against that shifting baseline thing? It just seems, it seems so sort of insidious that we, you know, (laughs) we we can't, we can't, like if we had a time machine, we could go back in time and go like, wow, this is so different. Let's bring this back. Holy moly, look at the size of that fish. But even in areas that we think of as wild there's uh, like the amazon as mm-hmm. I, th- I believe we found that that there there has actually been a lot of agricultural activity mm-hmm. and they're not even wild spaces so that's right well yeah. i mean one of the unfortunate realities of this new unnatural world is that there really aren't any places that are truly wild anymore even in the most remote spot the most deadly spot i often think of wild as uh, you know a place that can kill you um, yeah, <laughs> and that's one good definition of it. Um, and there are still plenty of those. But even in like the coldest, most remote part of Antarctica, there's soot from our our massive uh, coal burning operation around the world. Uh, the climate has changed. The air is different. We breathe air that is uh, that has a higher concentration of of carbon dioxide than that breathed by any of our ancestors. Yeah. Like in the entire two hundred thousand year of 200,000-year history of Homo sapiens, our species, CO2 has never been this high. Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, I guess congratula- congratulations, but that's an insidious example of, of shifting baselines where we're like, oh, well, that's, that's normal. Yeah. That's totally cool. Yeah. That's yeah. no big deal. Yeah. Um, but it is a big deal. Um, and so fighting shifting baselines, I think, is, is all about uh, uh, history. Um, and, you know, our ancestors made some some great choices, like the national parks, and they made some terrible choices like eating the passenger pigeon to death. And we right. need to kind of go back to our history and, and try to prevent ourselves from making those terrible decisions like, oh, the world, a world without rhinos is, is, is fine with me. Um, it's not fine with me. Um, and hopefully it's not fine with you yeah. either. So it's, it's really, you know, a case of those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Right. And yeah. I think uh, I think the pictures help. Like uh, the, the Florida pictures are just – nobody who sees those from, from the most avid angler to the most ardent environmentalist isn't moved by that. The angler wants to catch that 40-foot fish. Right. He wants to have that opportunity. Right. And the environmentalist is like, that's a healthy ecosystem. Right. And that's what I'm fighting to uh, preserve. Just to bring this to a personal uh, level, so I, I recently tweeted you a picture of, of the Death Star from Star Wars, and I said, "Yes, this this may be a rendering of of the Earth in 2100." Um, because I, you know, thinking about an unnatural world, I couldn't think of anything more unnatural. And your response was, "Well, it probably won't look th- like that. It'll look more like Cor- Coruscant, yeah. which is the the city planet. Yeah, from the world Star Wars. city planet. <laughs> yes." <laughs> Um, I mean, we won't sheathe it entirely in metal like they did the Death Star. Yes. That's really what I was getting at. Yes. Most likely. You never know. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and that sort of gets to a, a quote from the book, which I, I resonated with me and said, we could end up in a kind of self-referential playground, a world refracted through human needs, wants, and whims. Humility and compassion are required now more than ever, a willingness to refrain, to let a vacant lot take its own course without human improvement. So, you know, I guess all these things that we're talking about, even though we're trying to make things better, you know, we're still in, in control. We still have a lot more control than, than we ever had. That's right. So is it possible that we will 
completely control everything on our planet that we could potentially replace all of these natural ecosystems with you know either machines or managed ecosystems that don't resemble the wild uh, version at all I mean where do you think this is headed, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that is, so that's kind of the central challenge of this Anthropocene idea is what kind of world do we want to live in? Um, and my answer to that would be, I certainly hope not. Um, the answer, the honest answer to your question, is it possible? Yes. Uh, could we do that? Potentially. I suspect that it wouldn't work quite as well uh, as, as the natural systems do at, at providing us with oxygen and clean air and clean water and all the things that we kind of take for granted. Um, but theoretically, uh, and, and some of the geoengineers out there, these people who want to kind of take over global environmental systems would say, yeah, I can build you a machine that will do just as good a job as the Amazon rainforest at providing you with oxygen. So don't worry about the Amazon rainforest. I think that's terrible. It's probably true, but it's a terrible idea. Um, I would hope that we would want to live on a world that kind of brings along with us not just humanity and its many cultures and this kind of global civilization that we've built, but also all our fellow travelers on this spaceship, all the plants and animals that kind of came up with us. Why would we want to lose any of them when we have this, this kind of power? We don't have to. We're just choosing to. And I'm, I say we're choosing to, and it's mostly out of uh, uh, ignorance and, and inertia. Um, but there are other forces at work. So, for example, our increasing clustering into cities, into uh, not into a world-spanning city like uh, Coruscant, but uh, you know, in New York, in Lagos, and uh, in uh, in Beijing, um, is actually can potentially be good for the global environment as we kind of uh, make our impacts smaller by by uh, making them smaller in space, intensifying our impact in one area to kind of let another area roam roam free, um, whether it is a just a vacant lot. Or, or, or something vast and untamable like Antarctica or, or Siberia or the Amazon rainforest. I would hope that we can kind of have the wisdom and humility to, to let that happen. Um, but the jury's out. Uh, right. you know, we're, but we're making those decisions right now. So, so it comes back to this idea of, of restraint that, that we're, or, you know, we're sort of confining our impact to a certain area or a certain amount or something like that. Right. And and it's a, a sort of collective effort. Yes. And yeah. right now we're 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 acting like a like a glacier, you know, marching down from the north uh, and just kind of bulldozing everything in front of it or like the asteroid that uh, got mentioned earlier and just like hurtling towards earth and and uh, you know, oh, too bad for the poor poor dinosaurs. Yeah. But the difference is an asteroid has to follow gravity. The glacier has to follow kind of the increasing snowfall yeah. from, a, from a cooling climate. We're conscious. Right. I'm here to tell you. We're <laughs> conscious. It might not seem so all the Some time, but we're, yeah, yeah. We're, we're conscious. Yeah. No, everybody's conscious. Yeah. Um, we can choose differently. Right. And uh, that's the difference between us and an asteroid or a glacier. And if we want this new uh, geologic period that's named after us to last longer than hundred years or even a thousand years, if we wanted to go on for tens of thousands of years or even millions of years, like some of the geologic periods in the past, then we're going to have to behave in that way because uh, we won't get there otherwise. That was David Biello, environmental journalist and broadcaster, speaking about his book, 
the unnatural world, the race to remake civilization in Earth's newest age. You can read an excerpt of Dave's book on our blog at pbs.org nature. And while you're on our website, be sure to check out all of our podcasts, full-length nature episodes, articles, and much more. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to the Nature Channel on SoundCloud. Until next time, I'm Eric Olson.